what I'd like to do is actually take up some stuff that Todd was talking about and develop it in relation to parotheology. And if you were there for his very first talk on Sunday, you'll notice he talked about three different ways that we can sacrifice. Broadly speaking, you can sacrifice to something knowingly and willingly, right? You can give yourself to a cause, and he was talking about that with conversion as well. Like, even if you convert to something bad, you're at least showing some sort of agency, some sort of decision-making. You're jumping out of your life world in some way. So you've got sacrifice where you give yourself to a cause or to a person, whatever it is, and that's a knowing and willing sacrifice. And then you have uh, examples of knowing and unwilling sacrifices. So if you're in a, a country where you have to be drafted into the army, uh, you have to fight. You may be unwilling to do it, but you have to do it. And then this third dimension that he talked about is a type of sacrifice to something where we give ourselves like wholly and completely to something and we're not even aware of it. It's happening behind our backs. We're not conscious. We think we're actually acting in our own self-interest, uh, but really something deeper is, is going on behind the scenes. Uh, I was talking to somebody recently about uh, the kind of next iteration of driverless cars. There's a friend of mine who's working in LA on what's called, I think it's called Traffic 2.0. And it's about, basically, it's incredible. Cars are, are obviously going to self-drive. Uh, roads that will change in relation to what's going on. Signs that change, speed limits that change. Uh, it's incredible because at the moment, as an aside, you have to, um, the, you know, they're driving these Google cars and whatever for hundreds and hundreds of hours on real roads. But they can also just now simulate um, driving for computers so they can get like five billion hours of travel time by speeding up the computer and it can also test the computer in zero gravity uh, on a planet with three suns uh, driving through the desert or you know it can literally just you know teach a car to do pretty much anything and uh, I was just I had this vision when I was talking about it I was like I think this is what cars were like aiming at all along and that we are just the cogs in the wheel of their master plan that they needed us to get to the point where they could drive themselves and then they're going to kill us all and then in the future someone will come to the planet earth and there'll be no humans but all these cars and driverless things and everything will be working just without us we thought that we were doing something for us but we were we were their slaves. And that's, that's kind of what Todd is saying, that uh, within our contemporary setting, many of us weirdly think that we're acting in our own self-interest when we are exhausted, symptoms sick, uh, destroying our relationships with others. We're frantically pursuing things, un unable to enjoy our lives. And it's not you know, the simple distinction between you're either selfless or you're selfless. Uh, the Freudian notion is, well, no, there's a perverse type of selflessness, this weird type of selflessness in which you act against your own self-interest. Uh, animals are great utilitarians. They've all read uh, Rawls. They've all read Bentham. They all maximize their pleasure and minimize their pain. If, if you look at most animals, that's how it seems to work. Uh, but human beings are terrible utilitarians. Uh, we, we seem to do things that don't maximize our pleasure. 
Uh, we seem to do things against our own self-interest. We go out with people that we know are bad for us, or we you know, get into toxic relationships, or we, we, if they're not toxic, we damn sure make sure they become toxic. That's the weird thing. It's like, you know, it's not just that you always find yourself in a bad relationship. Sometimes you might be the type of person that if it's great, you have to find a way to sabotage it to make it bad so that you can complain about how bad it is. I mean, we've got weird, <laughs> weird strategies for making sure our lives are difficult. And that's a very difficult thing to explain at first. It's counterintuitive. Uh, and yet, I think the evidence of it is all around. And that's actually something that Freud was trying to understand, was, was working to understand, is why is it we are bad utilitarians? Uh, there was an experiment that was done uh, I, I think it was um, uh, a guy Milner, a French theorist, who talked about this, but I don't know if it's true or not. But supposedly some scientists, as they do, had mice, their favorite animal, and they, they put them in a cage and they had a glass sheet. And they had really nice food behind the glass sheet. And then they had really rubbish food that was easily accessible to the mice. And what they found is what we would expect is that the mice tried to get the good food, the really good food, and they bounced against the glass. But when they realized they couldn't get it, they just went and they ate the rubbish food. It's like a dog. If you're walking a dog and the dog wants to go one way really badly, but then you pull the lead a couple of times and then they just kind of walk the other way. The, the reality principle sets in. They go, okay, they renounce that, that way and they, they walk the other way. But then they took them out and they played with their brains and they did something sciencey and they put them back in. And whatever they did, they got the mice to the point where they just kept bouncing against the glass, trying to get the good food until they died. Like they would not renounce the good food for the bad food. They'd created little human beings, right? Because that's kind of now getting close to what being a human is about. That weirdly, we can sometimes not renounce things. We keep going and going after something to our own detriment and death. And uh, this is why Shizek talks about zombies. Uh, and I, I like The Walking Dead for this, because in The Walking Dead, uh, it's a slightly different type of zombie show. Uh, usually what happens is a zombie has to bite you, and then you become a zombie. But in The Walking Dead, you already are zombies. It's in you, but when you die, it becomes fully manifest. So the zombie virus is inside you already. And I think that's a good analogy for this death drive, that this kind of... Because what does a zombie do? It'll just unrelentingly go to eat flesh, even if you've got a shotgun, you're shooting it, you're trying to destroy it, it doesn't matter, it's perversely selfless. It will pursue to the end degree, no matter what happens, ripping its own flesh. There's something about the zombie drive that is particularly human. Um, <clears throat> so we have this, this interesting access. This is, by the way, what makes life meaningful, by the way, because what is meaning? I mean, if not an over-attachment to something. Uh, what is love, if not an over-attachment to something? Two people see the same person. One person loves that person individually, the other person doesn't. It's the same person, maybe they see pretty much everything in the same way, but one kind of overvalues, one kind of puts this excessive value in the other. So there's very positive sides to this. Um, it's what makes us human in the best and worst of ways. Um, so Todd 
outlines these three different types of sacrifice and says that what we have today often is we think we're acting in our self-interest. That's the Ayn Rand thing, that we're, we're just selfish, doing their thing, and hopefully we can make it work for everybody. But uh, actually, the animal kingdom doesn't act like this. They don't frenetically pursue more and more and more and more. Um, and the idea is how do we free ourselves from this? And this is a theological question to me. This is fundamentally, this is, I, I said it yesterday, I think, but the, the Jewish story, uh, the Hebrew scripture starts with a type of eatable di dilemma where you want excessively this thing that you cannot get and the more you can't get it, the more you want it. And if you can't get it, you're unhappy. If you do get it, you're unhappy. So there's this, there's this interesting human, what makes us human? We are marked by a sense of lack that we seem obsessed with trying to fill. Um, and there's a theological term for that, and that is sin, right? I think it's a great word. I like, I like these horrible words, because <laughs> uh, they're horrible. And, uh, but they've got something in them that's really insightful. So sin means separation, lack, type of lack. And I just want to mention three dimensions to sin, I think, that are interesting, hopefully to us, that are, that are interesting beyond some narrow confessional Christian uh, world. And the first is, I would say, the ontological dimension of sin. And what I mean by the ontological dimension of sin is the fact that there is a foundational lack within us that to be human is to experience separation. And we all know this because the original separation is with the primary caregiver, often your mother, right? The, the original separation is, is with that, that individual who nurses you. Before about three months, there is no you as such. You are part of your mother and they are part of you. And there is this tragic, painful separation that occurs, what's called alienation, where you, and it's called alienation because the separation isn't complete, where you just gradually, very gradually start to get a sense of selfhood. You, you get a sense of being you. And with that sense of being you, you feel you've lost something, this primordial oceanic experience of oneness. There was this wonderful thing that, that was lost, that you lost, but you didn't lose it because you are the result of the loss. That the, the ego is formed through this sense of selfness, of not being you, not being this lectern, but not also not being myself. This is the weird thing. Is, um, there, uh, one of my favorite shows when I was young was Miami Vice. And uh, there's a, there was an episode, it's actually a two-part episode, it was one of their most famous episodes, where uh, Sonny Crockett, I think it was Sonny Crockett, as uh, anybody... Yep, you're nodding, that's good. Um, he, he was uh, basically, he's a police officer who's pretending to be this super cool drug dealer, drives Ferrari, Ferrari Testarossa, fantastic car, looks ridiculous. But uh, when I was a kid, it looked incredible. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he's got all these cool clothes, uh, lives on a boat. So he's got this like incredible image like this, this, you know, it's Sonny Crockett. That's why I wanted to go to Miami. I was so obsessed with Miami because I thought everyone was like as cool as that. <laughs> um, but what happens is he, there's an explosion on a, a ship and he jumps off it, or it's a boat. He jumps off and he goes into a coma. And when he comes out of the coma, he thinks that he is the drug dealer. What's happened is he now th assumes the identity that he's been playing for years. Because you imagine he's been, he's been this uh, 
like undercover cop for maybe five or 10 years. Out of the coma, the first thing he's remembering is, is the stuff about that narrative. And the first thing he sees is the fake ID that's related to that narrative. And so he becomes the drug dealer. That's kind of like what we all are. What, what happens is, it's called the mirror phase, is you're all rubbish and weak and you can't really do anything. And you know, your, your, your mum or your dad or whatever holds you in front of a mirror and says, look at you, you're beautiful, you're strong, you're great, right? And very gradually, you identify with that image in the mirror. <clears throat> That's me. Now, you feel rubbish, but that, you know, that, that, that person in the mirror seems good and strong, and your mum or your dad is telling you, look at your brain. Or it's, it's obviously not, doesn't have to be a literal mirror. It might be you're just like your brother or your sister. Look at them. You know? You're just like that person on TV. And you start to fantasize yourself as strong, as competent. And we all do this naturally. I've said it before, but we all say to kids, oh, you're so fast, you're so strong, oh, you're so brave. And they're not, kids are rubbish. They're not, they're slow, they fall over, they're not brave. You know, they scratch their knee and they're crying like a soldier's not gonna do that, right? They're the opposite of that. You're a little princess, you're not a princess. It's a $2 target dress, right? The princesses don't <laughs> wear $2 target dresses. Come on, right? So, I'd be a great father. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. I can beat kids in arm wrestles all the time and races easily. Every, give me a five-year-old, I'll beat them in a race, no problems, right? So, but, but, but what we do is we, 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 you know, we talk about this, we kind of create this idealized image. And this is very, very important because we identify with that image and it makes us feel good, even as adults. If you're going out, even at wake or something, and you don't know anybody, you've got a bit of social anxiety, but maybe you, you, know, you look well, you look in the mirror, you do yourself up, and what you're doing, you look in the mirror and you go, that person looks like they've got it all together, right? I don't feel I do, I feel very, very anxious, but you, know, you go to the bathroom, you look at yourself, go, right, that person's got it together, I can do this, and you, you go out. So you're identifying with a mirror image, that's kind of got it all together. And that's often why you find people looking in the mirror and they're, they're looking at that image. Or Instagram, you're putting up this idealized image of yourself. You put out, and, then, and then hopefully people like it and then that anchors it, that's, that's me. You know? and, and your idealized image might be rock climbing or driving a cool car or whatever it is that's your idealized image. But then you put it up on Instagram and you can fool yourself into thinking that is you. Um, and it's important to anchor the image back into yourself. Uh, a problem occurs if you don't. So for example, if you idealize an external image, but, you, but your mother or your father's gaze doesn't say that's you, right? Doesn't, doesn't bring it back into you. You start to always see the ideal outside yourself. So these are people who idealize pop stars and actors or whatever. You start to always impoverish yourself and put all the good stuff in someone else out there. And it's a very common thing, you see it all the time. We impoverish ourselves, we put it out there. In one sense, you need to anchor it back. But we are by definition caught between then who we are and who we'd like to be. Now, not who we are in some sort of real true essence, but who we are in our anxieties and in, our, our, uh, in, 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 the, in the, the conflicts and in the, the contradictory ideas we have, all of that, and who we would like to be as a solid, together type of person. 
my ideals James Bond when I grew up because my mum liked James Bond so I think I identify with James Bond so I always always if I'm going if I'm in a casino in Vegas or something I'm imagining that I'm James Bond walking around and the great thing is they don't put mirrors in casinos because they do want to break the illusion you don't want to catch your actual image and realize you're not right and it's a very depressing place but we have these these ideals um there's a oh what was it um uh, the ideals can, oh, here's a, I like this story because it, it, it illustrates it quite well. Um, story in the Bible about Jesus. Uh, he's learning golf and he's, uh, it's uh, Mark 16, 17. Uh, it's a, uh, <coughs> it's a, uh, he's learning golf and he's really, really bad at it. Terrible, like terrible swing, doesn't really know what he's doing. And disciples try and tell him this, but he's like, back off, I'm Jesus, right? And they're going, oh, this is a nightmare. But uh, Jesus still puts the ball down. He you know, takes out uh, an iron when he should be using a wood and an absolute nightmare. And sure enough, hits the ball, it slices it, goes into this river. And he's like, Jesus, right? So he walks out, walks on the water, picks up the ball, brings it back, slice, slices it a second time. Uh, he goes out again onto the water. And as, he, as he's walking on the water, this old farmer goes by, this guy Seamus, right? And Seamus says to the disciples, who does that guy think he is? Jesus Christ. And the disciples say, no, that is Jesus Christ. He thinks he's Rory McIlroy, right? Now, in other words, what Jesus is doing is he's got an ideal image. Like we all have these ideal images of, of who we are, even Jesus does, right? We, we all kind of idealize others. Or we idealize, as I say, um, a cleaned up Photoshop version of ourselves. That's like whenever uh, somebody said to me, I wish someone looked at me the way Kanye West looks at Kanye West, right? You know, that's the... <laughs> Is where, where potentially Kanye West is in love with his own idealized image. You've got people maybe all around him telling him how amazing he is, how brilliant he is, and you can get caught up in that. Contrast that actually with Oprah Winfrey, who once said, I sometimes have to take the advice of Oprah Winfrey, right? She realizes that she's not Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, the Oprah Winfrey, the person who's got it all together and is sitting there with all of this money, all of this wealth, all of the answers, that that's not her. She experiences a disconnect between her idealized image and herself. So there's a great book called um, In Praise of the Unlived Life by Adam Phillips, who's a great writer, really recommend him. And he talks about how to be human is to live between who we are, who we'd like to be, and also to live between what we have and what we would like to have that we are not one or the other, we are in a sense the product of the in-betweenness. Uh, guilt is the name for the first one. Guilt is just the name of the experience of not living up to what you think you should live up to. That's all guilt is, that somehow you either do something that you feel you shouldn't, your idealized image shouldn't, or you don't do something that your idealized image should. So it's just a, it's just a term for that disconnect. And uh, I wonder if, uh, uh, sorry, uh, we started 20 minutes ago. Yeah. yeah. Start over again. <laughs> um, and uh, the other is maybe a sense of meaninglessness, the sense that, you know, there's no matter how much you get, no matter how much you have, it doesn't seem like enough. There's not something that can satisfy. So this is a natural dimension of being human. I am separate from you and I am separate from myself. I experience this type of lack, and I fantasize that I might be able to close this. So that's the ontological dimension, and I call it ontological lack, uh, or ontological sin, because it's, in a sense, it's uh, at the very core of our subjectivity. 
It's at the very core of our being. It's necessary. It's, it's something that we have to wrestle with. Original sin is a theological term for it, but divesting it of its confessional language, just getting to the core of what I think it meant, which is to be born is to be born into a sense that something is missing. Pascal got that with this idea of the God-shaped hole, that to be born is to be born with this sense of uh, a gap within us, which, you know, he thought we could fill. Um, then there's the ontic dimension. This is the second bit. And the ontic dimension of sin is that this sense of lack attaches onto something concrete in, our hist in history, in our lives. So it's not just abstract. Uh, we start to think that money will satisfy it, or fame will satisfy it, or a relationship will satisfy it, winning something will satisfy it, uh, it's looking a certain way, whatever it is, that some things happen in our lives that uh, becomes connected, that makes this concrete, that concretizes the sense of anxiety. And often what will occur then is we will, we will rotate around that for the rest of our lives, right? Um, see if I can say it's, it's See if I can say this in a succinct way, but uh, you might um, just contingently go out with someone who is, was really bad for you, right? First relationship you have, the person was a nightmare. They really were difficult. You weren't looking for it. You weren't trying to get that. You just thought you liked the person. Turns out they're an absolute nightmare, right? And that experience, then what it does, weirdly, is it generates a deep suffering, a deep pain, but also a fantasy that if it had gone right, everything would be wonderful. It would be great, right? So the failure, the failure fuels the fantasy that if the failure hadn't happened, it would be great. Just like in gambling, it's the losing that fuels the fantasy that if you won, it would be wonderful. And then what you might find out is you might find yourself unconsciously repeating the cycle because you, then you go out with someone and they're not terrible for you and it's really boring <laughs> because they're, there's, they're not the one that satisfies everything. So you look for another toxic relationship because it's so bad that it really starts, keeps the fantasy alive that, wow, this could really satisfy. Now, to put this in concrete terms, <laughs> people often ask, why do prosperity churches have so much power? whenever it's obvious they don't work, right? Now, if prosperity churches worked, you might be able to understand why so many people go to them, but they don't, right? And then the first thought people have is, well, what if you just pointed this out to people who go, and you said, listen, here's the statistics. People do not get wealthier from going to these prosperity churches and putting money into the collection plate. There's no statistical difference between people who are in the church and people who are not. But of course, we kind of know that that probably wouldn't have much effect to 90% of people. And you go, why is it? And the psychoanalytic answer is that the power of prosperity churches lies precisely in the fact that they don't work. It lies precisely in their failure. Because in failing to get the money, it keeps the fantasy alive that if you did get it, it would be incredible. If you did get all the money, you'd realize that it doesn't really work. I had a time there where um, really good friends of mine or became really good friends, but they funded me, and they were very, very wealthy. And I lived in one of the wealthiest places in the world for three years. And it was lovely in the sense of I had a lovely shower. It was a, it was a walk-in shower with two heads, two heads shower, not just two heads connected, like two heads separate, 
coming from different angles. It was lovely. And it was really cool. And, 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 and the house was always at the right temperature. And, and in America in general, you've got that here. Your houses are freezing half the time, right? Always perfect temperature. Always lovely. And, this, and the, the bed was really comfy, really nice mattress. We're like, those are good things. Nothing wrong with them. But did it satisfy the existential angst in my being? No, it didn't at all. Just gave me a better shower, which was quite nice, quite liked. Um, so the, um, if, if you get what you think will fulfill you, you realize it won't fulfill you. And it's actually quite devastating. What you kind of want is to retain the fantasy. And the only way to retain the fantasy is keep failing to get it. So in an example of a church, um, you might think that if only you did everything right, if only you threw away your whole record collection, that was what we did in the old days. Did anybody throw away their whole record collection? No, in the sea or something? Good on you. Good on you. You can't do that now. You just have to unsubscribe from Spotify. It doesn't have the same symbolic effect, right? It's, it's rubbish, right? It's very simple. In the old days, you had to bring your record collection down to the river and jam it all in. But you, you kind of, you, you fantasize that if you did it all right and you, you fasted enough and you prayed enough, you did all of these things, and uh, my church, actually, we did uh, fast for a week once a year, and it was incredibly difficult, really difficult. Most of us, you didn't actually succeed, in it, and you failed by about day four, day five, right? But you think, oh, if only I could do all of that stuff, wow, then it would be amazing. And that keeps you addicted to the fantasy. Here's the crazy thing. If you do all of the stuff, you do it all, and you realize it doesn't work, and then you can be free. So weirdly, the failure... To, to go all the way um, is what keeps you entrapped. But if you go all the way, you can find that the, the failure, the real, whenever you realize it doesn't work, that's a success. It's like, oh, now I can go to the next step. So a lot of people who follow my work are people who went all the way. M missionaries gave up their, their lives, their lives, who sacrificed for it. Go all the way, and then you realize, oh, it's not all amazing, like, you know, light and cappuccinos with Christ in whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. So weirdly, the very failure to get something keeps the fantasy alive of this, of this fullness and keeps you entrapped in it. And then you start to repeat the cycle. You repeat the cycle, you repeat the cycle, you repeat the cycle. Um, and then the, the third dimension of sin is the ethical. So the ontological, the ontic, and the ethical. The ethical dimension is all of the destruction that comes out of this frenetic pursuit of the thing that will make you whole and complete. And I'll just mention three. The first is all the destructive things that happen to you when you un unwittingly keep giving yourself unknowingly to, uh, say, the increase of stuff, the, 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 the desire to have more fame, the desire for, like, I don't think this is actually connected to any one political regime. I think it's, it's part of what it means to be human. This frenetic excess, this drive to move beyond instinct, to move beyond just satisfying something, to get more and more and more, destroying ourselves. The second, which is even worse probably, is that we never get it, but the second thing we do is we fantasize that other people get it. Right? We start to look at what's called non-castrated others. And in LA, he says you walk around and other people look like they've got their lives completely together. They look like they have got the life. 
Um, there was a woman I always looked at uh, in this coffee shop, Deus Ex Machina. She was so fascinating. She was so cool. She had all these cool friends. She had this motorcycle. She was like really attractive. She was. She just seemed to have it all together. And I remember I'd always be there and I always wonder who she was because um, she she was working in the shop part of it. And um, then I found out later, about a month later, because I knew some of the people who worked in the shop that she'd actually taken her own life. And I was I was devastated. I didn't know her at all. Didn't know her at all, so it didn't affect me in an emotional way that way. But what affected me is I thought that she had the perfect life. In some weird way, watching her and her friends, I, had, I was fantasizing her as the non-castrated other. And, and then when I found she took her own life and then he said how she was you know, deeply troubled, et cetera, et cetera, it was, like, it was just that shock of, oh, yeah, you know, I, that, this is a fantasy of mine that I'm putting on other people. That I'm, not only can I not get the thing that, you know, will make me happy, but I have this tendency to fantasize that other people have it. And what generally comes out of that is either that you hate yourself or you hate the other person. Um, you, either through jealousy, which is you want what the other person has. And that's what René Girard talks about with mimetic desire. You desire what the other desires. You think that what they have will help, will make you complete. Or envy which is where you do want what they have, but you want the type of life that they have. So you do want their partner, you want the type of relationship they have with their partner. But that all comes out of, again, this sense of a lack. One, I can't get it. Two, you have it and I don't. And the hatred that comes from that. And you can see this even with things like immigration and stuff, where the other is seen as either lazy and taking all of our money or a hard worker taking all of our jobs. These are mutually exclusive claims, but it's like the other has the thing, they have it and we don't. We want to take it back. And then the third thing which is connected is that we get a substitute pleasure from the pleasure of, think, of getting people to think that we have the pleasure, right? So, it's a, so the first is you know, you're, the destruction that comes from not getting the thing that will fill you. Second, the destruction that comes from imagining other people have it and the envy and the jealousy that arises. And the third is we have this very shallow type of destructive pleasure, which is by pretending we have the thing so that we can at least get other people's envy and jealousy. So like in, uh, in America, you write, I think families write Christmas cards where they talk about how their kids are doing. You know, and it's all like little Johnny's going to be president and Rebecca's straight A's and is going to go to Harvard and all of this. Johnny's a drug addict living in a car and uh, the girl, she's like, uh, you know, she's, she's shacked up with her boyfriend and isn't talking to the family. It doesn't matter. You want to, you want to present the perfect family because if you don't have the perfect family but you get a slight enjoyment from people thinking you've got the perfect family or you're going out with somebody, you don't like them but they make you look good. So you go like, oh, people, people are jealous of us when we hate each other, but at least other people think we're great, so we get some substitute pleasure. Those are just three dimensions of this type of reality. And what I'm interested in is how do we, and this is what I think conversion is, being born again. So it's not about belief. It's a way of being. It's a way of transforming how we desire within the world, transforming how we libidinally invest in the world. It's about being in the world but not of it. It's a very biblical term. You know, you have as if you have not, existing in this world but somehow not caught up libidinally in it. Um, <clears throat> now, I'm probably, yes, um, I'll, I'll kind of, draw this to a clue somehow. Um, the, the, 
what I'm trying to do with parotheology, this is the thinking behind it, is our tendency is to think, and this is a religious way of thinking in sacred and secular forms, that there is an original blessing, a wholeness, completeness, then there is a fall, <coughs> and then there is a return to the blessing. So that's the structure. Original blessing, fall, return to blessing. Even very conservative Calvinists kind of ultimately have an original blessing kind of thing. Original wholeness, fall into lack, and then return to wholeness. Um, what I would want to argue is the more radical position is we, and, and actually uh, Todd said it last night at the Dark Horse, there is a constitutive uh, trauma or antagonism that gets everything started. Right? That's, that's how the universe got started. That's how we get started. It's actually, so weirdly, we start off with the fall. <laughs> the fall comes first. We are born into this, th this kind of like lack. And then we fantasize a wholeness that lies behind us. And then we uh, attach ourselves to a utopic vision of returning to that wholeness. Now, the idea then is that salvation is not to get to the wholeness but rather to get to the point where you rob the lack of its sting. And death is another word for lack. You rob death of its sting. Not that you get rid of it, but you take away the painful dimension of it. Um, an example of this is obviously debt, right? A debt is a lack. There's two types of nothingness. There's a nothingness that is nothing and nothingness that is something, right? If you have no money, you don't have any money. If right now you've got no money in your pocket, that's, that's a lack of money. But if you have debt, right, then you, it's, it's a nothingness that is something. You have to pay it back, right? So debt is a nothingness that is something that actually can ruin your life. So whenever you're in debt, you have to work hard to pay it off. You're always getting letters and phone calls. It causes anxiety, all of that kind of stuff. The problem is not the debt. The problem is all the calls and the letters and the demands to pay it back. Uh, I saw this whenever the housing market crashed in Northern Ireland, and a lot of my friends were in deep debt, and they got a lot of letters and phone calls and threats that they had to pay the debt back. Um, but then <laughs> some of them realized that it was, it was a worldwide crisis, so actually all these threats were empty. Nobody knew what to do. Like the whole, the whole thing crashed. You know, I had a friend who they were trying to get something like 10 million out of. Guy lived in a terraced house. He was he, he, he he, he from, uh, he was working in Tajikistan as a missionary, came home with a credit card, bought a house, did it up a bit, sold it for like twice the price and went, wow, that's interesting. Bought two more, did the same thing. Within a year, he had 50 houses. I was like, whoa, what? how did that happen? And then another year later, <laughs> he had none and he owed 12 million or something. And um, it was like, it was, they didn't know what to do with it. They were like, no, the whole thing was just a mess. The housing market was just going radically up in value and then the whole thing crashed. Um, but the issue is not the debt, it was the letters. That was freaking them out. And so bankruptcy is interesting. Bankruptcy is not where the debt is paid. You don't pay the debt. Bankruptcy forgives the debt. So it's a, or it's as close to the idea of forgiveness of debt as we can get. So the debt isn't filled. If I pay a debt, I take the money in my pocket, I put it in, and that fills it. If I forgive a debt, I say the nothingness that is something is nothing. And that's very different, very, very different. To forgive a debt is to say that nothingness that is something is nothing. I render the nothing nothing. <laughs> and 
in theological terms, it's, it's the same with this idea of sin, is to pay a sin, to pay a debt, is to fill it, to fill the lack. And I think that's the religious notion. To forgive sin, to forgive sin isn't to fill it, to fill the lack, it's to rob the lack of its sting. That's what the year of Jubilee was. It wasn't the payment of debt, it was the forgiveness of debt. And I think it's an incredibly important thing that, that we think that in the religious terms, we have to find a thing that will fill it. And in secular terms, I say it's money, it's fame, it's whatever it is, something that will fill the lack. When what we need is communities that help us experience the forgiveness of the lack, the lack is robbed of its power. It's no longer. And that's, by the way, the, the thing with the serpent in the story, the beginning of the Bible. The issue is that the serpent keeps saying, if you take that fruit, you'll be whole and complete. If only you do this and everything will be wonderful. It's that voice that's always telling you that you lack, but if you just do X, Y, or Z, then everything will be great. That's the problem. That's what we need to get rid of. That's, that's the issue. And the technology of theology to do this is grace. That's it, grace. Grace is the experience of accepting that you're accepted. Paul Tillich says accepting that you're accepted, which means grace is this moment and this event where you realize I do not have to try to fill the lack in any way. I don't have to try to take these steps to get from here to there. I don't have to do anything. I can just stop. Because the, the, the issue Paul talks about this is that um, we think that, how do I just say this, is that, um, that if we, oh, here's a clinical example. This, this woman who's sleeping around, and she's, she's, she's sleeping around all the time, but she feels guilty about it. She's thinking, I don't want to do this. My, my family would uh, judge me. My community would judge me. Um, but thank God that I feel guilty. Because if I didn't feel guilty, I'd probably do it even more right? I do it a little bit. I go out every now and again, I, I, having sex, and it's dangerous. Hanging out with strangers, it might get sexually transmitted disease. It's not the way I want to live, but I feel the guilt. I feel bad about it. I feel shame. So perhaps that will stop me from doing it more. But in this clinical example I was reading, uh, what happened is that the analyst just very gradually helped lower their sense of shame and guilt and the, the basically helped to take down the prohibition that was preventing them from sleeping around more, right? So they took down the barrier to, that stopped them from sleeping around more, but as they took down the barrier, her desire to sleep around diminished. And then she could choose well, you know, who she wanted to sleep with and who she didn't, but what, what turns out is that the very prohibition that was stopping her was actually the very thing that was fueling the desire. The more you say, I do want to have an affair, I do want to have an affair, I do want to have an affair, the more likely you are to have one, right? The, the, the more you say no, 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 and put up the barriers, the more you have the law, the more you have the desire to transcend the law or transgress the law. Uh, that's, that's the whole thing. If you, if you have a, a, a box and you say to a kid, don't open the box when I leave the room, well, of course, now the kid wants to open the box. The prohibition not to open the box is the very thing that drives the desire to open the box. So the weird thing about grace is it's counterintuitive. It's like, hold on, if you lower the prohibition, if you say you are accepted, you don't have to do anything, you don't have to feel guilty or bad, nothing, just drop it all. Just speak yourself. Just be honest with yourself. Just rest. You're like, well, if you do that, you're just going to go crazy. You're going to go out there and go mad. 
But the idea is no, as you as you as you are able to lower the prohibition, you also lower the desire to transgress the prohibition. Um, and therefore real change can begin to happen. So in the 12 steps, um, what you have is of course very practical advice about how to fix your life. But the, there's step zero. And step zero is the most important one, I think, which is you're just in a room of people who say you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do the 12 steps. You don't have to do anything. Just sit there. You can, you can come and you can sit there every week for a year and you don't have to say anything. Just every time that they go around the circle, you can just keep quiet and we'll respect that. And one day, one day you might experience this grace. I like the way Tillich says it because it's not just you're accepted, but you accept that you're accepted, that you feel it. It, it, it somehow permeates into your being. And then you say, oh, I'm an alcoholic, or, if, or I'm a drug addict, or I'm this, or I'm that. And you speak it, and you, you're honest with the truth in a room that just accepts you and goes, yeah, that's, that's, that's fine. You know, we're all in this together. And if that grace permeates, then the 12 steps are going to be really useful. Because <clears throat> they're, they're not like a law that you have to you know, obey and that will generate transgressions. They are just practical advice that come in the aftermath of the event of grace. But if you haven't experienced that grace, then they're potentially going to be walls that you keep bashing up against that you don't get anywhere with. Um, so, and grace, and this is where, and this is what I'm interested in what we were talking about last night, is whether you can create communities that actually affect change for tens of thousands and millions of people, potentially. Can you do the difficult work that, say, Jameson does with, with uh, you know, 10 or 12 uh, analyzands a week? Can you do something that is in the same field, but with a community of 100, right? And the thought here, and, from, and this, is, this is my wager, is that basically if you can create communities that enact grace, and, it, and people go there every week. You just go and it's part of your, your, your weekly routine, wherever it is, collectives of grace in which you are continually uh, invited into that experience. That can, ex you can experience the forgiveness of sin, the forgiveness of the debt. You can rob that lack of its sting. You can start to, to find freedom from the tyranny of wholeness, completeness, satisfaction. And, <clears throat> and with this, uh, oh, by the way, there's going to be time for you in the breakout if you want to ask me questions about this uh, to do it. So we may not have time for questions in this session, but also on Thursday, there's a whole set uh, uh, time slot set aside for questions. But... Um, the, the reason why I think Christianity is really interesting in this is it, it starts with where you're at. And, and the, here's where I'm going to try to reconcile the difference that Todd and I had yes, last night. Uh, I'm going to try and explain it and try to square the circle, right? Because I said about this kenosis, that we, have, we experience this emptying of God in these various realms. And Todd was saying, well, actually, instead of thinking of it as a fullness that is emptying, what you really have to realize is that it's a, it's a rupture from the very beginning. There's not a fullness at the beginning. That is itself a fantasy that is damaging, that what there is in the universe is some sort of antagonism. Right. Well, for me, Christianity starts with, with the desire to escape our brokenness. That's what we want. We want salvation, Right. That it's salvation in the religious sense of wholeness, completeness, the answer in this life or the next. 
And so we identify with God, the plentitude of being. But then you identify with a narrative in which God slowly empties God's self into the world. So God, even through the Bible, gets quieter and quieter until God's not saying anything, and then becomes human in the incarnation. So you have this journey of emptying. So you identify with God, and then God starts to become human. Um, so you know, one way of saying this is if you want to become like God, become fully human, right? That's the, that's the notion. So you identify with God. You go through this narrative until you get to the crucifixion where you experience this notion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see that within God, uh, there is this a lack and that connects with you. Now, I'm going to talk about what this looks like in practice tomorrow. So we'll look at how we actually do this. <laughs> but uh, this is just a theory. But, but in Christianity, I, I want to escape this lack. I identify with God, and then this narrative actually brings me into it, invites me to be fully human and fully embrace that lack. Uh, until the point where you realize that this is actually part of reality itself that's the ultimate that's so that's the uh, crucifixion moment where you then go oh it's not just it, grace is not just oh i'm accepted i can't be whole and complete but grace is more radical than that it's like there is nothing that there's no wholeness and completeness that's just a fantasy what there is is this struggle and this difficulty and you know what that's what makes it beautiful. That's, what, that's the rebel for Camus. That's the, the, and Marlon Brando's the ultimate rebel in The Wild Ones, right? They're in this coffee shop, and uh, Johnny is tapping, listening to the music, and some of the black uh, rebel motorcycle club gang are dancing with these women these, the, who are waitresses. And one of the waitresses looks over at Johnny. And, well, first of all, she looks over at one of the leather jackets. Do you remember this? Yeah. It's such a good, oh, so good, so good. So she's wearing these uh, earrings and their little bells. She says, do you like my earrings, these little bells? She's like, yeah, that's good. And then she looks over at Jack. She's like, what does what is a, a BRMC stand for? She's like, oh, that's the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. And then she looks over at Johnny, and he's just looking so cool. <laughs> and he's just tapping away, listening to the music. And she says, Johnny, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And he just looks at her and says, what do you got? That's great. It's such a good line, all-time best line. Uh, what do you got? And it's, it's this beautiful thing of going, like, oh, he is enjoying rebellion. The, the, the revolutionary is sad unless they get their utopia, right? And the conservative is sad unless they get back to their lost utopia. But the rebel, oh, they love their dissatisfaction. They're like, what, what am I rebelling against? What do you got? We're going to fight to the end. That's part of what life is. And so it not, it's not just this resignation, this acceptance of the struggle of life. It's being part of a joyous community, like uh, Paul Curry last night. <laughs> you know, he's turning the struggle and, and the, the breakdowns that he's really had and all of that into joy and into something beautiful and into a moment of grace and light um, and absurdity. <laughs> and all, all, all in this, this experience, that's the type of community we're talking about. So grace is a technology that is designed to, as I say, where you don't have to achieve anything. It's the anti-self-help, self-help. It's the first thing of don't do anything. It's like, well, well how's that going to work? It's like, well, that may, because the problem is whenever I said at the beginning, we sacrifice without even knowing it, right? We give ourselves over to this d desire for fullness without even realizing it. There's a part of us that does realize it. 
And it's the symptom. It's the bad back. It's the headaches. It's the migraines. It's the fatigue. There are parts of us that do rebel. We just can't hear it. You know, we can't speak the truth. The truth speaks. And so this rebellion is in our bodies. But grace responds to that rebellion, and it says, yeah, you don't have to, this is, this is not the freedom to pursue your happiness. It's great to have a society where you're free to pursue your happiness, but we need communities where we learn how to be freed from the pursuit of happiness. And we need that every week. We need to go back into, into those places through music and liturgy and words, the sermons, to enact that canonic self-emptying till we actually go, oh yeah, it's not even that there is a fullness that is self-empty. It's not even grace of, you're not going to be perfect. You know, not like that person, but you're okay, right? That person's great. You're rubbish, right? But that's okay. It's like, no, they're rubbish too. You know, we're all a bit rubbish and there's real problems in the world and real things we have to fight. But, but that's the enjoyment is in the struggle itself. And that's what I want to inject into really the evangelical church, but the Christian church, is if we can imagine getting that message enacted liturgically in communities, and that every week you're being bombarded with that grace, eventually I think you start to have a community that is genuinely disinvested or subtracted from this drive, death drive, original sin. You find a way to be freed from original sin, and if you have enough people doing that in enough places, it can maybe, uh, you know, stop the world from going to pieces. Any questions? Oh, yeah, five minutes. So you've got a couple of questions, and then we'll go, please. Thank you. <clears throat> That's a good question. I mean, and the wonderful thing about that is like my original story I told, I think, at the beginning, the, the Pope and the rabbi. You know, somebody might want to say grace you know, comes from the ground of being. Grace is some sort of, you know, comes, comes from God. Or somebody might want to say, well, grace is um, just an acceptance of the lack. It's a, it, grace is really the name we give to this uh, brief realization that fragmentation is part of reality. But it cashes out in the same way. <laughs> you know, it cashes out uh, so that's, that's why, like, for me, there's two theological parts. There's the mystics, and I bet you most of you are mystics. Most of the people who follow me are mystics, and you're wrong, but it's okay. You can still follow my work. <laughs> um, I was a bit mystic. I, I, I'm partial to the mystics, i got to say. In fact, I love them. Um, but the mystical response is, is, is that notion of the God beyond being. God, he cannot be grasped because God is, by definition, beyond grasp. And the experience of God is a bedazzling experience, a paradoxical experience that transforms you. And then there is this other theological dimension, which is kind of the more atheistic one, although neither fit into theism and atheism very neatly. Like the mystics don't fit into theism very neatly because in a sense they're the original atheists. Every time they said God, they said, but that's not God. So they were an atheist to every theism, they said. Jean-Luc Marion talks about denomination. He says the mystics always denominate the names. To denominate means to dename. So you name God and then you immediately dename God. And churches are called denominations, which I like because it, it says at our best we should be denominating, making sure that we don't idolize. And then there is this more kind of like a kind of like a kind of slightly more atheistic, which is God is the name we give to the lack at the core of reality. So so that's always been what God is. God is this ungraspable kind of like antagonism 
that uh, that that we need to glimpse and we need to participate in in order to live well. Uh, but I I want a community that that embraces both. The only thing I want to challenge really is the is the dimension of ourselves that thinks there is something that we can grasp that will fix it all, will get rid of the doubt, the unknowing. I don't think that was an answer, was it? I don't know. I don't feel I ever answer questions. Do you want to come back to me with something on that? <clears throat> yeah. And uh, yeah, because th this is the core question. And th in fact, this is where, and this is what we do in Wake, is we get to the, the deeper questions of the work. When I'm speaking in a church, I do an R and then I leave. And, uh, but here we can go a little bit deeper. And the, deeper, the deepest question probably is the question of, does is parotheology, uh, say I said at the beginning, crypto-evangelical theist or crypto-evangelical atheist? Is there, is there, what do we mean by transcendence? And I th again, for me, spirituality or transcendence, there is, there's, there's two ways to describe it. One is there is a transcendent reality that is a thing that is above and beyond and, and within. Or two, uh, there is a non-at-oneness within reality itself. They're both, they're both a kind of like, they're both paranormal, right? There's, they're beyond normal. There's, there's that which is outside of normality, <coughs> and there's that which is in the normal, but that cannot be grasped. <coughs> I know this is getting abstract, but think of it as say like superpositioning in in, in uh, physics is a type of paranormal activity. Now it's not paranormal in the sense of physicists think that there is something outside of reality that is stopping us from knowing something. It's paranormal in that they're saying there is something hardwired into reality. No, there's a, there's a the reality itself is not complete. So so there's there's what is, and then there is this uh, antagonism which is kind of outside normality. Uh, and both of them are against crude materialism. Both of them are against the type of humanism which tries to reduce everything to cause and effect and pure materiality. And both of those are, are resistant to, uh, <laughs> to superstition, <laughs> which is uh, uh, the idea of trying to uh, manipulate that paranormal, that, that other reality. I guess I want to keep the undecidability alive. I guess I want to keep that undecidability alive. Is that, yeah, maybe that's, uh, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, I, I want to keep that undecidability alive of, of how we articulate the transcendental. Like, there's definitely, I would say, a type of transcendental realm, but, there's, but there is a more theistic and a more atheistic way of articulating it. But I still wager that they, they cash out in health, <laughs> they, cash, if we, they cash out in the same place. And in, in philosophical terms, it's the difference between Kant and Hegel. Kant believed there was a noumenal realm outside the phenomenal, a realm that we could not grasp. And then Hegel was really the one that said, well, yeah, but the noumenal realm is in the phenomenal realm. It's not outside of it, it's kind of within it. There is a not, you know, and so those are, the, there's, a, there's Kantian theology and there's Hegelian theology, maybe.
Oh, I'll, re I'll repeat it. Yeah, I'll repeat it afterwards. Sorry. Okay, so I think the question, if I let me feed it back for see if I'm right. But so you're asking, you know, how does this? So the the birth of a, a, a child into the world, um, how does how does this relate to this notion of rupture and uh, separation? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I'll say it this way: but this is a difference between Caputo and Shizak. I think one of the or the one of the big differences between the Derridean approach and the Lacanian approach is that Caputo, who I love and uh, who I deeply respect, but he he sometimes will jokingly say, "Like I've turned to the dark side. I've gone a little bit too psychoanalytic, um, too Protestant." Because he's very Catholic. Because for him, a child is born into the world is a beautiful thing. It's like it's like you know, a child's born in the world, and they enter into to reality. And there's 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 butterflies, and there's mother and father if it's a good family, and it's 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 wonderful. But you read the Lacanians, it's like this child is thrown into the hell. You know, it's thrown into it's in the middle of World War Three. It's ontic shock. It's hard. It's like get me back to the womb. This is a nightmare, right? So you've got these two. You know, that's an extreme view of it, but two kind of visions of birth. One is it's quite a, a beautiful entry into the world, more Catholic, and the more Protestant is, no, it's a fall, it's a fall into the world. And I, I like saying that because I go like, well, that's, that's maybe a, a very simple way of, of saying the two different approaches to thinking of, of childhood. But I think where Todd and, where I, and I'm coming from is, is partly, yes, there's two births. There's basically the birth of the child biologically, but then the birth of subjectivity comes a little bit later. Whoever knew, you know, wherever it is, called the mirror stage, but a little bit later the child starts to become an eye. And I think what, what Todd would say, or definitely what I would say, is that that second birth is, is very much an articulation of a rupture, uh, of a fall. But I want to say, you know, if you're more drawn to Caputo, my goodness, the guy is brilliant. Do that. I mean, his view is much more. I, I don't think it's pessimistic because for me, as I say, the rupture isn't the problem. The problem is our failure to embrace it, our failure to find a way to enjoy it.